I hope my preaching is awful today. (laughs) They didn't recognize the authority of Christ preaching. They regarded him as only a man, even though they acknowledged he is a very well-spoken man. They had known for many, many years. And then after they had rejected Christ, sadly, folks, there's no biblical record that ever puts him back in Nazareth again. Matthew's Gospel tells us, leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Capernaum is about to become Christ's new adopted hometown, which is really no surprise because we'll learn next week it is where several of his disciples lived. And at this juncture in the narrative, we pick up with Luke Chapter 4, verse 31, which I'll read to you now. It says, And Jesus came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown the man down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power... He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about Jesus was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Well, beyond Nazareth, according to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're consistently reminded that Jesus' teaching is one that is recognized as having authority. Here we're told in verse 32 that the people were actually amazed that his message had authority. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that his message had authority? You know, does it suggest that every audience that hears it is by some means bound to respond in a particular manner? That it's compulsory, it has authority. Is it like the authority of a drill sergeant? You know, who has command over, over his unit, that he can forcibly make people comply to his word. Well, looking at the Bible, that's certainly not the case. You know, the town of Nazareth responded quite differently than other towns. It responded differently than Capernaum here. We know that many disciples followed Jesus because of his teaching, while many of the Pharisees completely rejected Jesus' same teaching while asking, by what authority are you teaching these things? That's in Matthew 21, verse 23. So the response of the hearers doesn't determine whether the preaching is authoritative. Jesus experienced numerous, very divergent responses to his preaching during his roughly three-year ministry. And you know, that, that runs quite contrary to what we hear today. The popular notion about preaching is that it should always exhume a very positive response and draw very large crowds together if it's good preaching. But biblically, very often, very often, 
The authority in preaching resulted in people turning away from Jesus. That made it no less authoritative. It was still authority. Very often, the authoritative preaching by the apostles resulted in them being thrown in prison, having their backs scourged. Other times, it resulted in large numbers of people coming to know Christ, professing Him as Lord. So we should be able to come to pretty quick agreement that preaching that is authoritative, it can't be evaluated by a consistent response. You know, a commonly held response. So, if we aren't looking to see what the crowd is doing, the response of the crowd, the t- because that's, that's just not helpful. If we don't go by that, which is pretty much the way the world goes, right? If there's a big crowd, then it's, then it's good. Well, they try to say that. But we can't go by that. So how might we be able to recognize authoritative preaching when we hear it? How will we know if the preacher is just wasting our time? Or even worse, perhaps leading our families and us astray. How can we know that? It's very important, very important that we be able to recognize authoritative preaching. Very important. I'd like to emphasize a few things for you here today. Number one, if you're searching for authoritative preaching, it should require some kind of response. There should be some kind of response. We've already um, excuse me, observed in the previous context with Nazareth that there should be some kind of response. The implications or, or the application of the teaching should be clear enough where people are not allowed to just straddle the fence. Just sit on the fence. They shouldn't be able to do that. People should receive sufficient information from the preaching, with enough clarity to respond by either saying, I am with you, I follow you, that is what the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God demands, or they're just going to say, I'm not. I'm sorry, I'm not. But it shouldn't leave anyone sitting on the fence. It should be clear enough where they can say, I'm with you, and I'm willing to act on my convictions. Far too often, folks, Far too often, preaching allows for no, there's no provision for a response. It may provide information, might contain an illustration, it might be for the purpose of accommodation. But no decision needs to be made. Uh, The teaching might be easy to listen to, might be enjoyable, might be even entertaining. But if it leaves you sitting right where you are, With no required change, it's not authoritative preaching. Jesus didn't preach like that. Jesus didn't preach where there was no change required. And such preaching that does not require change is not authoritative. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the Greek term excusia, which we translate just authority, authority in Luke 4, verse 32, that word authority, It supplies the ability to perform an action. That authority provides an ability to perform an action. I've written down my own paraphrase, which says the ability to cause a reaction. Authoritative preaching ought to have the ability to cause a reaction. It has the potential, 
If you're hearing preaching with authority, it has the potential to cause people to respond. It provides the tools. It provides the information, the equipping, so that you'll know how to respond appropriately. Respond with action. Perform an action. Now certainly, people don't still have to react. A preacher might stand behind the pulpit and preach an authoritative message from the Word of God, but that doesn't force anyone in the pews to respond. In fact, that same theological dictionary expands the definition of our biblical word for authority, saying it has the ability to perform an action to the extent that there are no hindrances in the way. There can be hindrances to your reaction your response that are outside of the teacher's or the preacher's control. Folks, there are those who will sit in the pews for years, years and years, and refuse to change their life at all. They've listened to biblical authority on principles repeated about money, but they continually begin to, or continue to spiral in debt. For years they've heard Warnings, prohibitions about sexual immorality, but refuse to put away the immorality. They've been cautioned about pitfalls of pride, grow colder and more isolated every week. People can refuse to follow the biblical instruction and just wander through their lives. Wander. Most biblical principles, folks, are clear enough. Clear enough where there isn't a whole lot of wiggle room to wiggle out of. But as a teacher, you can tell people, but you can't force them to respond. That's something you have to come to grips with as a teacher or as a preacher. You can't force them to respond. You can encourage them. You can provide exhortation. You can't make them respond. Pastor Weiler drew my attention to a couple uh, chapel messages that were given on the Dallas Seminary website by Charles Swindoll, who was chancellor there. And speaking uh, to a, a room full of potential preachers and ministers of varying types, and he himself, Swindoll, after faithfully preaching with authority for some 50 years, more than 50 years, advised those students who might follow in that same path, you have to resign, resign yourself to the fact you can't fix people. Preachers can't force people to put the principles into practice, especially if there are hindrances. Even if the Holy Spirit, you're Christian, even if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you might grieve the Holy Spirit, but there can still be hindrances to responding, folks. You can hinder the response. Pressure from your employer might cause you to respond in certain ways. Financial struggles might make you deaf to different exhortations. Bitterness in relationships with your family. Bitterness in relationships in church. Despair over health loss or the, or the death of a loved one. Whatever it may be, all these types of things that we carry with us, each and every one of us, including myself, can be a hindrance to responding to authoritative preaching. But you can recognize authoritative preaching by the fact that it provides you with the information. 
and applications clearly enough so that you know how to respond. You know. Authority provides you with the ability to perform an action. Robert Jeffress, a senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, once said that the best counseling you can receive is from the pulpit every Sunday. That is the best counseling you can receive for your life. Authoritative preaching empowers life change. But folks, you need to recognize each of us has hindrances. Every single one of us has hindrances, and we need to focus on removing those hindrances. Each Sunday when you come, you should prepare, folks, to hear the Word of God, to worship in spirit and in truth. You need to acknowledge that's why we come together is for the glory of Christ and to learn. You need to determine yourself to take the biblical instruction, to take that wisdom from the Word of God and take it into your lives and apply it to your lives. We can't do it for you. We have a hard enough time with ourselves. You need to distance your mind from your circumstances as you come to church or as you come to teaching opportunities where you hear the Word of God. Consider each message a challenge, folks. Consider that when you come through the doors, on your way into church as you're praying, trying to overcome that argument that you had. Maybe even on the way into church. But you have to resolve yourself to be prepared to open your heart to the Word of God that there might be a change. And you have to ask yourself, how would God like me to respond? The teachers at Port St. Lucie Bible Church pledge to provide you with the information from Scripture necessary to respond and improve your life. Hopefully you recognize that. Whatever venue you're in, whatever person is teaching and preaching, the rest is up to you. Biblical preaching, authoritative preaching, will give you the ability to respond. Secondly, number two, you can recognize authoritative preaching because by some, it's going to be rejected. Look with me, beginning about halfway through verse 31. Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? The people of Capernaum, they were amazed, and they also recognized that Jesus' message had authority. His teaching style, it was completely different from everything that they had typically heard. And I'll show you how we know that in a moment. But as Jesus' message fell on the ears of the people, literally in the original Greek, it's logos. You know the word? Logos means the word, the word of God. Literally, Jesus' word, not just his message, the word was recognized as having authority. And authority where in the synagogue there resulted a very negative response. I want to show you a picture here, folks. Most of these small-town synagogues were not very large. The one in Capernaum, which you see here, the remains of it, uh, was about 435 by 1080. No, that's the pixels in the photo. It was about 
the synagogue, the actual synagogue there was about 60 wide and 80 long. Now this sanctuary you're sitting in here is 60 wide and 60 long front to back. So just slightly longer than our sanctuary and the same width. And this is made completely of stone. Completely of stone, Jesus was teaching in an area about the size where we are right now. And as he preached the word in this stone synagogue, there rang out over the people a voice with disgust. It was a man possessed by an unclean demon saying, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, the answer to the demon's question, nothing. Jesus and the demon had no business together. The demon knew that. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. None. And and the demon said in verse 34, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now from verses 33 and 35, as you look, it seems as if this is a confrontation with a single unclean demon. Was it speaking on behalf of demons in general in verse 34? Were there other demons present, possessing other people there? I don't know. But what he says is very clear. Leave us alone. We reject you. I even think it's possible that this demon is referring to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth because of just what happened recently in Nazareth. It's an attempt to criticize him. He'd been run out of Nazareth too. He was rejected in Nazareth. His hometown didn't want him. Now the evil spirit's saying, Leave us alone, Jesus of Nazareth. We don't want you here either. Now what triggered a reaction like that? What would cause a response such as this? It was Jesus' authority. It was the authority with which he taught. And that's a central point to our passage today. We saw last week how Nazareth had rejected the verbal declaration of Christ. As he recited Isaiah 61, remember, he gave a verbal declaration but could do no miracle there. The people didn't believe. He wasn't going to dance for them, remember? He made a verbal declaration, and here we have an authentication of Christ. A genuine authentication. It begins with a miraculous confirmation of this verbal declaration last week in verses 18 to 21. And here Jesus now demonstrates his power over the spiritual realm. He has power over the spiritual domain. Next week we will see he has the power to heal. And then after that, the power over the created realm. These are three evidences given in a row. Genuine evidences by Luke. It's all provided by him as being irrefutable as to exactly what the identity of Jesus is. There's no question who he is. Verse 34, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And and this profession 
by, by the demon. It's astonishing, folks. It's astonishing. The people of Nazareth refused to recognize who Jesus was. But the demon here, he recognizes him. He knows who he is. He acknowledges that Jesus is the one who has the power to judge and send into outer darkness. He says, have you come to destroy us? Jesus has the power to send into the outer darkness of hell. Nazareth didn't recognize that, folks. They didn't, they didn't weigh what's in the balance of rejecting Christ. The demon knows. At least the demon acknowledged who Jesus really was. He had the power. He still has that same power. And he says, leave us alone. The demon's biggest mistake was just coming to the synagogue on that day. He probably should have skipped that Sabbath, right? Maybe gone out of town. But you don't really think this this was this demon's first visit to the synagogue, do you? No, I don't think so either. If the demon truly wanted to be left alone, he shouldn't have attended there in the first place. But that wasn't his typical style. I suspect the synagogue was what the demon considered his own turf. The people in the synagogue were that demon's subjects. He had been the influence over them. He took regular pleasure in deceiving them, so he tells Jesus, Leave us alone! The demon never had to deal with a teaching that came with authority before. There had been no authority in that synagogue. Who did the demon previously have to deal with? Excuse me, Mark chapter 1, verse 22 tells us. Mark says concerning this exact same occasion that he, meaning Jesus, was teaching them as having authority and not as the scribes. The synagogue was historically taught by the scribes. The scribes were the one who were doing, ones who were doing the teachings. They didn't teach with authority. The Jews in Capernaum, they could see the difference between not having authority and that which had authority. They're used to not having authority. When authority came in, it surprised them, and they said, what is this in Mark 1, verse 27? A new teaching with authority. It's new to them, and it has authority. Completely new thing for them. I suspect that as Jesus was traveling the area, and we know from our study last week that he had already done some healings in, in the neighborhood of Capernaum, that probably the synagogue ruler had gotten wind of it and said, you know what, why don't you come back? We'd like to have you back and teach. Temple ruler didn't know what he was getting himself in for. Their scribes, they didn't teach with authority. They were extrapolators of the law. They were not teachers of grace. The teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, it's well preserved, folks. We have many writings, many historical documents. We can see by their writings that which Capernaum was used to hearing, that type of thing that they used to hear. And most of the emphasis was quoting other rabbis. Other rabbis who had contrived ways of keeping the law. 
creative ways of keeping the law. They didn't focus on Scripture. They didn't articulate grace and forgiveness. They fabricated instead fanciful ways of how Israel could keep the Mosaic law and achieve righteousness before God. That's what they were used to hearing. Fanciful creations. What did their teaching look like? Well, many of you have heard some of these before. I'm going to share just a couple. And even today, many of these same rules apply uh, and, and summarize the activities that are strictly prohibited among certain Orthodox Jews. I'm not saying all, but certain Orthodox Jews. You're not allowed to extinguish a fire on the Sabbath, according to the teachers of the law, the rabbis. That's considered work. You can't make a bouquet of flowers on the Sabbath because that's kind of like tying sheaves of grain. All right? It's like harvesting. You can't apply makeup because it's considered dyeing as you would dyeing wool. On a website, myjewishlearning.com, which at least represents itself as being a learning resource for Orthodox Jews, it acknowledges this, quote, The Bible does not specifically list those labors that are prohibited on the Sabbath, although it alludes to them, unquote. And, and notice the source of their authority as I continue here now. This is from their own website. They quote, Not Holy Scripture, but rabbinic tradition, saying, again, quote, The rabbis decreed that one should only... One not only should avoid forbidden acts, but also must do anything that, must not do anything that, number one, resembles a prohibited act or could be confused with it. Number two, is a habit linked with a prohibited act. Or number three, usually leads to performing a prohibited act. Boy, that can get really broad. This is what many Jews observe even still today believe it or not. The teaching of the rabbis, the extrapolations of these rules. And back in Capernaum, the teaching of the scribes would include long, drawn-out, convoluted lectures of traditions and regulations imagined by men. They defended these traditions ferociously or fiercely, Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 6, that they would invalidate the word of God for the sake of preserving their tradition. And I can imagine in Capernaum, as the scribes declared the evils of braiding your hair, because it mimics the work of weaving, that our demon-possessed man in our story would regularly offer a hearty, Amen! He was probably the one in the Amen corner. Reinforcing anything that led to legalism. Denouncing anything that was of grace. Applauding rigid adherence of laws that are nowhere found in Scripture and completely made up by man. Hmm. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 from our scripture reading earlier, Paul the Apostle warns us, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits 
and doctrines of demons, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. These are just a couple samples that Paul gives. Folks, legalistic righteousness, it's demonic. It's demonic. How does Paul tell us to respond to such things? He tells us in, the, in that passage, everything created by God is good. Nothing can be rejected or is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Here's the key. For it is sanctified, means made holy or set apart. It is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. That's how you determine what's acceptable, what's not. By the word of God. It's sanctified. It's, it's, it's set apart. It's, it's holy. It's to be appreciated. We're to give thanks for it as long as it can be in accordance and in harmony with the word of God and you have examined it in prayer. Things we use, things we enjoy become holy unto the Lord. How? By the means of examining the word of God and prayer. That's how we know. And then he reminds Timothy, in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. Again, that's our source. And of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Folks, this can get out of hand anywhere, anytime. Legalism, it's not something just in the old. Churches will argue about things. We don't have a big problem with this here, but we all get drawn into it. You have a couple of illustrations. People will argue over whether or not you can go to Disney World. Some will say, I would never go to Disney World. They own ABC. Have you watched what's on their television programming? Others would say, no, I'm, I'm okay with that. We're not teaching them that. What we're showing them is what is offered at the venue that I'm taking them to. Others would say, I'd never put up Christmas decorations. Do you know what that's from? Do you know how we got to those? Others would say, I'm fine with Christmas decorations. Folks, we could go on and on, and I could cite what Rabbi Weiler says about Christmas decorations and how that compares to other rabbis, Rabbi Buchanan, on what he says about them and about where they may be placed and about how many you might have and what color they could be in order to remain righteous before God. See how it can get out of control? That's what's happened. And we talk about it, but it's not teaching. A couple of those things come up, by the way, this last week on Wednesday night with the men, but we won't, we won't talk about that. Everybody's going to have their convictions, but some things just get drawn out that can never be proven one way or the other from the Word of God. The scribe's teaching had no authority because it had no biblical foundation. Jesus comes into Capernaum, starts teaching with authority from the Word of God, begins teaching the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, of God and emphasizing that and I tell you what demons start crying out in rage they don't like it same response by the way typically pretty much as back in Nazareth rage you can recognize authoritative preaching when people who thrive on binding heavy loads those who love to put heavy burdens on others using doctrines that are nowhere found in scripture 
when those people can no longer bind those heavy loads, they throw a raging fit and exit the church. That's all you can know. They can't stand grace, just as this demon can't stand grace because their gratification comes through getting others to comply with extra-biblical regulations. Some people thrive on that. Jesus offered no such Pharisaic traditions. Jesus offered grace. And he proclaimed liberty to the captives of such regulations. He rebukes the unclean demon in verse 35, saying to him, Be quiet! Come out of him! And when the demon had thrown the man down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing the man any harm. Jesus spoke, and the demon came out. No seances, no candles, no holding hands, no singing. None of that stuff you see in Hollywood. That's just Hollywood, folks. The demon packed up his bags, and he hit the road. Said, I'm out of here. Now, does that imply that everybody who's a little legalistic are demonically inspired? No. No. But the doctrines that they carry from place to place can be. Authoritative preaching emphasizes the grace of God, not the teaching of the scribes. Grace of God will stress out the demons. They'll hit the door and everybody after they leave will be left sitting here in their right mind. Verse 36, And amazement came upon all them, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about Jesus was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Jesus came with authority, and he came with power. Greek there is dynamis, power. Jesus exercised dominion over unclean spirits. I don't have time to go into that miraculous display of power today. We will go into that on a later occasion, just so you know, discussing the miraculous gifts. I'm not, I'm not skirting it for any given reason. I'll probably have to do a topical on it, because you just can't do that in five minutes. So we'll be coming back to that and, of course, the healing that we'll discuss next week. We'll talk about exorcisms and other things. Gerald's going to bring together for us some illustrations and gather some people together and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> but just as, with, uh, as a primer for that day, uh, Scripture makes very, very clear that Jesus, later on in Luke Chapter 9, verse 1, needed to confer such power to his disciples. Luke 9, verse 1, Jesus called the twelve together. We see other uh, situations of this in Scripture as well. We'll go into another time. Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power, gave them dynamis and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Also in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul, while defending his apostleship, they're challenging his apostleship. He said, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Dynamis. Same word. I'm not skirting the subjects. We'll, we'll talk about it in the future. Um, I have not had anyone confer to me the power over unclean demons. I've not had anyone confer to me 
the power to raise people from the dead. I've never seen anyone raised from the dead. If you know how to do that, get with me. We're going to go to the, go to the graveyard and you can show me. But I do want to briefly add one more characteristic of authoritative preaching. But it should probably go without saying that authoritative preaching, it's unmistakably biblical in content. There's no authority that exists that is not explicit in the Holy Word of God. No other authority. After Christ preached the Sermon on the Mount, three long chapters in Matthew, Matthew 7 verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and again, not as the scribes. Being God in human flesh, as Jesus spoke, his words were God's words. He spoke as a prophet. He spoke as a son of God on behalf of God as a prophet speaks for God. We've talked about that on numerous occasions. Hebrews 1 verse 1. God, after he long ago spoke to the fathers, that is our ancestors, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. So we've got the prophets of the Old Testament spoken to us in his son, that is the incarnation or life of Christ. And God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, Jeremiah. During the life of Christ, God spoke directly to Israel through his son. As God walked as a man, as Christ. In John 14 verse 8. This is Philip, the disciple now, asking Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. As the eternal and holy Son of God, Jesus had the authority to speak as God, because he is God. This too was conferred to the apostles, as preserved in the sacred writings of the New Testament. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason... Right into the Thessalonians now, the church in Thessalonica. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. In 2 Peter 1.21, the apostle Peter, speaking on behalf again of the apostles, says, No prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's how we received the prophecies of Scripture. None was ever an act of a human will. Holy men of God spake. In the, in the Apostles, Paul's final letter to the church, he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy, evil men and impostors, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, 
knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And here's 2 Timothy 3.16, same location. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. Paul says, Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, Timothy, continue in Scripture. Then finally, in the closing words of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, written by the last living apostle at the time, Revelation 22.18, the apostle John makes a stern prohibition and strictly warns everyone, saying that no one shall take away from nor add to the words of the prophecy of this book. No one shall take away from nor add to, or that person will be cursed. You cannot add to the prophecies contained in the book. The words of man alone, just a man, contain no authority over other men, or for the church, apart from what is clearly observed in the Holy Word of God. The authority of preaching is established exclusively in correctly interpreting the Scriptures and correctly applying the prophetic writings of the Old Testament combined with the sacred writings of the New Testament, which include the words of Christ during His life. That's it. We are all together under the authority of the book. That's the only authority, is the book. The, the, the position of the preacher, it's not to pontificate. That means to, to just boast dogmatically about things and opinions of his own. Did I get that right, Ruth? Is that about right? Okay, good. We've got an English specialist in here, so I want to make sure I got that right. Just to to boast dogmatically about something a person assumes. That's not the role of the preacher. The role of the preacher is to offer a historical historical context where he can, hopefully copious amounts of of cross-references in Scripture that reinforce Scripture, because Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. You reinforce the scriptural fact... And thus the role of the preacher is to proclaim the word of God says. Not what I say, not what I think, not what my opinion is. I'm just a man. Any preacher you hear today is just a man. The preacher ought to offer reasonable applications where you ought to be able to agree yourself. Yep, that's what the Bible says. The authority rests solely in the Bible, not in man. Assuming that, that you and I are both indwelt with the Holy Spirit, I'm pretty confident with myself. You have to ask that, answer that question on your own. But as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, as it is faithfully declared, we all ought to be able to walk out of here in harmony and say, yep, that's what the Word of God says. And then you've got to decide whether or not you are going to comply. We can't do that for you. I might have a bad day. 
but you shouldn't routinely walk out of here saying, I have no clue from that passage how he got to that. That shouldn't happen. Not regularly. Once in a while you might say, that guy's crazy. Uh, There's no room for me to make stuff up with no biblical foundation in it. Scripture says that is what evil men and imposters do. Evil men and imposters. I suggest as you you study along with us here in this group and every other group, keep a pen in hand, keep a notepad, jot down every scripture reference, and you can go back to them. That's what I do. I can't flip my Bible quick enough. I jot them down. If I have questions, I go back later. A third way to then recognize authoritative preaching is when the preacher is continually saying, just as Jesus said to Satan when he was tempted, it is written. That's the authority. All authorities reserved to the Bible never should a preacher or a worship leader or a prayer partner or any other declare to you or others, you won't find this in the Bible, but God told me this. No. That does not work. There is no authority, way too much room for people to be deceived. Anyone can stand up and say that. Any demon-possessed man can stand up and say that. Well, God told me to tell you this. Nope. No. In doing so, they have attempted to establish themselves as the authority and become a mediator between you and God. There's one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. Scripture reveals them to be an evil imposter and deceiver. Don't accept it. They've represented themselves as a false prophet. So, folks, authoritative preaching, three things. It ought to give you the ability to respond. Look for that. Not just a bunch of good stories that are entertaining. You ought to be able to walk out and say, I think I know what I can do to improve my life. Become a better Christian. Give me building blocks on how to more uh, please God. Secondly, it ought to be straight enough and clear enough where you expect at some point there's going to be resistance. There's never any resistance to preaching. You've got problems. Folks, our doctrines are going to be resisted. The doctrines of Christ. Um, There's never any resistance. People are just giving fluff. Something's wrong. Thirdly, everything that we teach has to be established on the pages of Scripture. It has to be evident enough and clear enough where everybody can give a hearty amen, not just the demon in the corner. All right? Let's pray, folks.